if you've got a Bible, uh, please turn with me to Esther, chapter 1. And if you're in our church Bibles, that is page number 410. Thanks, mate. 410. <coughs> Esther, chapter 1. We're starting a new series this morning, um, going through an eight-week uh, kind of look through this book of Esther. We're going to give you a bit of background in a minute, but before we do, I just want to ask you a question as we start. What do you do when you feel like God is not there? Let's need some tissues down there. What do you do when you feel that God isn't there? I'm a mixed room of people here, so there's kind of people from um, kind of all different parts of, of kind of belief and unbelief and faith and, and maybe no faith at all, but every single one of us will have gone through circumstances in life where we're, where we're struggling, where there has been pain, where there has been disappointment or dissatisfaction. And it might even be that you're a Christian here this morning and you've been walking really faithfully. You've been in the Bible, you've been praying, you've been kind of in the, in the community of God's people and something hits you like a curveball. And, and the question that comes to mind is, where is God? Where is he? Sometimes... I know in this room, sometimes we go through situations in, in life and it feels like God just, just is nowhere to be found. There, there are situations, and I know from my own life, so I'm sure I speak on behalf of a lot of us this morning, that there are situations in life where, where you are trying to navigate through something and you kind of need God to, to show up and, and, and if only he would just kind of just give you kind of an audible voice or some sort of lightning bolt from the clouds just to show that he is there and, and, and he is present and he is concerned about that situation. If only he would, and he doesn't. Often it's tempting to think that, that God, in the silence, that God is not concerned with us. That maybe he's not even powerful enough to intervene in the situation that we are in. Maybe you don't even believe in God this morning. This series in Esther, the next eight weeks, is going to be a fascinating look at a book. This is the only book in the whole of the Bible, 66 books in this Bible. And only one book do we find that God does not speak. God doesn't speak at all in, in any of this book of Esther. He's quiet. He's silent. But we're going to see actually week after week as, as we go through chapter after chapter that even though he, he may appear distant, even though he may seem silent, his hand of providence and care and his faithfulness to his promises are all over this book. God never leaves his people. He is, never, he is never away from his people. He never departs from his people, even in the darkest of situations. Even when we feel like he shouldn't be anywhere near us because of the things that we have engaged in, because of the things that we have thought, because of the things that we have done. He is always present with his people. We see that in the book of Esther. And my hope and my prayer is that we believe that to be true for us. That God is near to his people. He's present with his people. Some of you will know that Elizabeth and I, a number of years ago, used to lead a ministry with sex workers in town. 
And we used to go out every Thursday night, late into the night, and we, we would have food and clothes and hot drinks uh, for these ladies. And, and we began to kind of see these ladies and through prayer, see these ladies as God would see them, made in his image, beautiful in the eyes of God. Yet these are ladies whose society would, would, would stay a million miles away from whose society would say, say are unclean, are kind of untouchable, are, are disgraceful people. You know what, one of the most powerful things that uh, one of those ladies ever said to me was this. Bear in mind, almost all of these ladies have been abused, not just by kind of men who use them, but by a lot of them, their, their parents, uncles, fathers, grandfathers, people who they put their trust in. One of the most powerful things that this one lady ever said to me was, was we were just praying over this lady and I just put my hand on her shoulder and she broke down. And the reason she broke down is that she said, a man has never kind of touched her in a way like that, which was just purely out of love and care. That she has only ever received abuse and, and being used as a commodity and being used by men ever since she was a child. And it was the first time in her life that a man had touched her and not wanted anything from her. Touched her because I cared for her. I didn't know this woman. God had just called us to go out and, and called us and given us an opportunity to pray for her. Yet she, she assumed because of who she was, because of the sin that she might have engaged in, because of the way that people perceived her, because that she was pushed into the margins of society, that God would want nothing to do with her, that men would want nothing to do with her. Folks, I want us to see this morning, it doesn't matter how you've walked in this door this morning. You could have walked in here and been involved in the most horrendous, disgraceful sins imaginable. God loves you. He doesn't want to kind of push you to the side and he doesn't see you as someone who is, is untouchable. He isn't silent in your concerns. He isn't silent in your darkness. He isn't silent in your troubles. God wants to draw near to you. I want us to see as we go through this book in Esther that he is the most faithful husband that you can imagine. He is the most faithful father that you can imagine. We sung that this morning. Do you believe that? If you're a Christian here this morning, you've sung, you've sung loudly, God is a good, good father. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that he wants to draw near to you, even when you think that he doesn't? Even when you think that he should be a million miles away from you? Even when it seems that he is absent, do you believe that he is a God who is near? We're going to see in this book of Esther that there is nothing. There is nothing that humanity can do. There is nothing that we can do. That God is kind of thinking, no, that's too far. They've gone too far. We're going to see in the next few chapters, in the next few weeks, we're going to see kind of just tension all over the place. We're going to see exploitation. We're going to see sexual sin. We're going to see a genocide, fear, just uncertainty and risk, apparent coincidence, and God is in it all, folks. He's not removed from it. He is in it all. I don't know if you kind of found this book growing up, Esther, the book of Esther was one of these kind of bedtime, kind of cute stories that mom and dad would read to me. It is not that story. This story is filled with horrific, horrific accounts of man pushing against man, man pushing against God. 
Man go into the depths of their sin. And yet God meets them there. Before we read, we're just going to read chapter 1 this morning. Can I just give you a, um, just a, a bit of a, a health warning? There are tons of names in this book. And I'm going to get several of them wrong. But we're just going to go with the flow and just, um, just look at me as if it was meant to sound like that when we read it. But I just wanted to give us a little bit of background before we read it. Because if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, you maybe might not know where this lands. But the book of Esther was written around 3,000 years ago. And Elizabeth, if you just kind of throw up this, just to give it um, some context in terms of where it is in, in the history of God's people. Um, around 1000 BC, you see kind of God bringing together his people and he, and he puts kings across his people. His people were called Israel. So he has a promise that he gives to his people through Abraham. Before this, he gives a promise to Abraham that he's going to gather a people to himself. He's going to rule and reign over his people in his place. And he establishes kings. And so you have a, a kingdom which God rules over. And he has um, different kings who, who rule um, uh, uh, rather well. They have issues, but they're ruling in, in a way which is, 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 is largely kind of keeping the kingdom together. So you have Saul and David and Solomon. You have 120 years of a united kingdom. But then things quickly start to go south. These kings start chasing after their own desires and, and the kingdom divides. It divides into two. You have Israel in the north. You have Judah in the south. And, and they're kind of divided. And, and, and as they kind of divide out, people just get, get deeper and deeper entrenched into their sin. They, they become foreign to God. They forget who God is. Like God is a thing that just their forefathers knew about. They forget that he is their God. And eventually, out of love, out of love for his people, God sends foreign rulers to, to come over his people and to drive them into exile. Drive them away from their homeland, drive them out of Jerusalem, which was their city, the holy city. And it's in this exile that we find the book of Esther. God's people have been pushed out of the place that God given them. They are under a foreign rule. And what you see just before we start reading this book of Esther in the historical timeline is God in his mercy starts to call his people back. Under a ruler called Zerubbabel, you can read about him in the book of Ezra and in the book of Haggai. God starts to call his people back. He says you can come back to Israel, you can start building the temple again and all of God's people are given a chance to return. But some of them don't. And that's where we kind of find ourselves in this book. The, the, there are a, a kind of a remnant of God's people who are still under uh, this foreign rule in, in the Persian Empire. We're going to come across a king, King Azuerus or, or Xerxes I as he was known in, in the Greek. And he was ruling from around 486 to 464 BC. And let me just give you an idea of kind of what the empire was. So you first have this kind of Babylonian empire, which is then taken over by the Persian empire. And the Persian empire, like we just can't comprehend the size of it, but it was, was hands down the largest empire in the ancient world. It was just full of wealth and, and just um, and gold and, and just fertile lands. It had everything there. This book of Esther features in the, the capital city of the Persian Empire, a place called Susa. And we come across this group of Jews who, for some reason, we don't particularly know why, have decided not to return to Jerusalem, but are staying put in this foreign city. 
perhaps they're disaffected with with this kind of call to go back. Perhaps they're just stubborn and they don't want to go back. Perhaps they're so comfortable in this foreign land that they want to stay. But there is something that marks all of God's people at this time. You see it throughout the Old Testament at this point. People think that God has abandoned them. They believe that God has kind of just just had enough of them and abandoned them and left them to their own devices. But again, we're going to see that the presence of absence is not the same as the absence of presence. Let me say that again. The presence of absence is not the same as the absence of presence. Just because we can't see God or hear God, it doesn't mean that he is not there. He is at work right through this book, whether they see it or not. God is always at work to accomplish his purposes, to gather his people together under his rule in his kingdom. And his kingdom is a place where there is eternal joy and satisfaction. So let's pick it up. Esther chapter 1. I'm just going to read this first chapter. I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in. Now in the days of Azuerus, the Azuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Azuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with corns of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ezra. As you wear us. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Maimon, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Anabagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king Asuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law that is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Asuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Asuerus. For the queen's behaviour will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, 
since they will say King Azuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the Queen's behaviour, will say the same to all the King's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the King, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before the King Azuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honour to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this is your word. We need your help. There's so much going on here. So give us eyes to see how you are at work. Help us this morning to see Jesus as our faithful king, as a faithful husband, as a as one who leads his people in ways of righteousness and peace, as a king of a better kingdom. Holy Spirit, lead us towards truth. Help us to see Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So here's the situation. King Azuerus, I'm going with that. You can say however you want, but that's how we're going to say it for the next, next eight weeks. King Azuerus, the king of Persia, a foreign king, He's not one of God's people. He is ruling and reigning over this remnant of God's people who have remained. And his kingdom sounds unreal, doesn't it? Like verses 1 to 9, like you can just go through all of those things, all the, all the riches, all the glory, all the splendor and pomp, all the, all the, uh, the gold and, and the wine, the violet hangings, all the kind of linens that have come from all over the world, come into this kingdom which sounds in these first few verses like it is flourishing. Like this guy, he has a party for 180 days. Like I've been to long parties when I was younger. That might have gone into the morning, but 180 days, imagine that. Like just partying day after day and you wake up in the morning, what are we going to do today? Same as we did yesterday, we're going to party. And that going on for half a year, like this guy is, is enjoying life. He's, he's having fine wine. He's got his friends around him. He's kind of so decadent in, in the way that he lives. And you read these kind of first nine verses and, and in some ways, if, if you just read that, it'd be like, oh, that's, that's a kind of life that I wouldn't mind giving a go. I wouldn't mind experiencing that. I wouldn't mind kind of doing those things and just having that, that power and that, and that authority. King Azuerus was known as the God King. He was that powerful. You see it here, he is ruling over 127 provinces, all the way from kind of where, where Pakistan is now, all the way over to, to Western Africa. He ruled over that whole province. And he's sitting here having a feast with his princes. If you kind of write in your Bibles or take notes, just take note of that. There's so much irony through this book. You're going to see kind of things popping up again and just contrast. The writer wants us to kind of see one thing and then, and then, and then see another thing against it. And you're going to see the book ends with another feast. It starts with a feast of pomp and glory of this king on his throne enjoying life to the full. A picture of power, a picture of satisfaction as he rules over this kingdom. 
And I want us to see now that, that we see that in, in the kind of kingdom of Persia, but that is also a picture of every kingdom that has ever come and ever gone. Every kingdom that has come and gone has been pursuing power, has been pursuing kind of satisfaction and comfort and contentment. So you have the Persian Empire and then you, you have kind of the Greeks and the Romans and even all the way to the British Empire. The British Empire was about power. It was about accumulation. It was about just trying to find satisfaction and contentment with accumulating as much power and wealth as we could. The Americans did the same. The American dream, what was that a pursuit of? Comfort, enjoyment, satisfaction. And those empires have come and gone, but there are still kingdoms, kingdoms and empires amongst us now. The, the kind of the kingdom that is, is, has come and maybe just about um, fading out now is, is maybe Western consumerism. Just the accumulation of stuff. And that's about power, it's about comfort, it's about satisfaction. The kingdom that is so prevalent now is probably this. The kingdom of self. That's probably the kingdom that is ruling and reigning now in our time ourselves like we are the kings of the world like like we are trying to build our own kingdom our own empire and it's a pursuit of comfort it's a pursuit of pursuit of wealth it's a pursuit of satisfaction and, and that wealth could be material wealth it could be a, a kind of monetary wealth it could just be wealth of friends or whatever it is but we're all trying to find comfort and satisfaction and in each of these empires that comes and goes you see on the exterior, it looks glorious. Like, like this empire here, the Persian Empire looks glorious. The empire that we're pursuing now, the empire itself looks glorious. But it's only apparent glory. It's glory on the exterior. You see quite quickly after verse 9 here that actually everything that is up, uh, kind, of, kind of thrown up to, see, to, to be seen as glorious is just a facade. Verse 10, uh, he's kind of merry, he's drunk, the king, and, and he sends word to, to bring his wife to him. And his wife says no. It's fascinating. This is the most powerful man in the whole world. His outward glory is incredible, but the reality is his power doesn't even penetrate his own family. He can't even bring his wife to come to him. The most powerful man in the world and his wife shrugs him off. In his anger, and it looks like in his drunkenness as well, he, he tries to kind of make a judgment. You see that in the second half of the chapter. He, he kind of comes together and, and brings a plan. And you can just imagine the scene. This guy's been drinking for 180 days. And all his friends have been drinking as well. And they're like, okay, what should we do about this? The queen's not coming. Let's kind of make up this rule that, that all the women in all of land, in all of land have got to do what their husbands say. They've got to kind of do what they're told, speak in the same language. Let's write this down and get it out as soon as we can to everyone. They haven't got a clue what they're doing. This is how we're going to fix it. Cobble something together, try and kind of pull our power back. The writer wants us to see that the kingdom presented in front of us is a sham. It's a fraud. It hasn't got the power that it thinks it has. It's a facade. And let me help us to see the same, folks. The kingdom that we see in Esther here has apparent glory. And the kingdoms that are before us are exactly the same. 
the kingdom of self, the empire of self, may look glorious on the outside. If only I could be king, if only I could be queen, then everything would be okay. I'd be, I'd be truly satisfied. I'd be truly content. I'd find the joy that I'm after. But that is just apparent glory. I don't know whether you were fortunate enough to see Ricky Gervais's speech at the Golden Globes a few weeks ago. Phenomenal. If you haven't seen it, go into YouTube, watch it. Don't, don't let the kids be around because there's some choice language in there. Some of it was a bit distasteful, but he puts his finger on the money. Like this is his outgoing speech. Then They are literally never going to ask him back because he took the opportunity to just totally knock every single person in the room. These are kind of actors and actresses who are at the peak of their career. Directors and producers who, who, are, who are paid millions of pounds to make films and documentaries. And he just flattens them in nine minutes. He pulls all the pegs from out of them, just pulls the carpet from under them and shows them for what they are. They're just normal people. They think that they are the kings and queens of the earth. They think that they are the most important people in the, in the world. And he is just frank with them. It's like, you're just the same as everyone else. You have no right to kind of come up here and tell, tell the world what to do. Let them make their own mind up. There was Ricky Gervais' speech and then there were a few other speeches as well which kind of followed in the same kind of pattern of, of just of, of assuming that, that people have, have, have influence and power beyond themselves. Michelle Williams got up. She, um, I don't know what she was up for, but she's the wife in um, The Greatest Showman. Dawson's Creek as well, if you're old enough to remember that. And she got up and she gave a speech. And she had the room in tears. But a key message in the speech was this. Don't forget, don't, don't kind of think what other people uh, think. Don't kind of care what other people think. You are the most important person in the world. You are the most important person in your life. So make decisions that promote yourself. It doesn't matter who you trample on on the way to get there. She didn't say that, but that was the tone of her message. As long as you get to where you want to be, that is the most important thing. And people are clapping her on and, and, and kind of in sheds of tears as she, as, she, as she preaches this message of the kingdom of self. There is a Western crusade of this kingdom of self, but it's full of cultural inconsistencies. We defend one thing when we trample over another. It's exactly what she was doing. It's the same with gender, it's the same with poverty, it's the same with wealth, it's the same with justice, it's the same with politics. Every area of, of society and culture in some way is marred by a selfish pursuit of self. Us just trying to find life and satisfaction through ourselves being kings and queens. The kingdom of the world right now, the kingdom of self, that's a new phenomenon. It's only been around for the last 10, 15 years and there's a reason it's a new phenomenon. Because the kingdom before it hit a ceiling and, and couldn't give out anymore. And, and that expired and the kingdom before that hit a ceiling. And the kingdom before that hit a ceiling. Every kingdom will come and go in this pursuit of, of life and satisfaction and it will get so far. And then it will find that it's not able to give you what you're looking for. Chapter 1 is just begging and crying out for us to see that the kingdoms of this world are weak, folks. They are wasting away and they are ultimately worthless in their ability to give us life. There is glory in the kingdoms around us, but they are apparent glory. So what do we do? Well, firstly, we need to view the kingdom that we live amongst with a renewed perspective. 
the pursuit of life, the pursuit of meaning, the pursuit of lasting satisfaction in the kingdom of this world will not only exhaust us, but it will be a foolish endeavor because the glory of the kingdoms around us are temporary. They're fading and they're only surface deep. Esther wants us to see, this book of Esther wants us to be able to see really what the world is and to see through the veneer of the world and to see the true value lies in an altogether different kingdom. If you're a Christian here this morning, you know that to be true. You know that if you are pursuing life and meaning, it is not to be found in the kingdoms that we invent around us. It's to be found in the kingdom of God. But I know because I know this is to be true for myself, we so often forget that. We forget that Jesus is better, that his kingdom is better. We kind of fall into the lies that actually, if we want to find contentment and satisfaction, if we really want to find life, then we need to go over there and try that thing. You need to know that that is, that is how Satan works. That is how the enemy of God works. His very name is deceiver. That's what he loves to do. Or you want to find comfort? Come to this kingdom over here. You'll find it here. Or you're thirsty for kind of for, for, for satisfaction? Come and drink here. You'll find it here. You're hungry for kind of for, for contentment, for, for relationship, whatever it is. Come here and try this out. That will quench your thirst. That will give you drink. Our true value lies in an altogether different kingdom. God warns his people about this all the way through the Bible. Listen to this in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. A cistern was a, was a kind of, um, they would uh, gouge a, a hole or a trench into the rock and it would fill with water. And quite often they, the, the, the rock would break and impurities would come in, dirt would come in, mud would come in. And the picture here that God is saying is that, that you're, you're chasing after the, the things that I want to give you in the wrong places. You want life, you want contentment, you want satisfaction. You find that with me. I created you, I made you. But instead you're going and looking over there in places that will never be able to quench your thirst. Never be able to satisfy Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 4. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a fount of water springing up to eternal life. Do you hear that? Jesus, who is God, says that if you want life, if you, if you truly want to find meaning in this world, and he's not talking about a, a physical drink. He's talking about life itself. And each of us kind of enter this world thirsty to find life, on a journey, on a pursuit to find life. And we go to all these different kingdoms and Jesus is saying, no, I will quench your thirst. Come to me. The water I will give you will come up like a fount, springing up to eternal life. If we want life and true life, we need to stop searching around, trying to find it in different kingdoms. Folks, if we are broken this morning, if we are lost, if we are walking in darkness, I want to tell you this morning that you will not find the balm and the healing that you are looking at, looking at, searching around in this world. 
And that's kind of not me being harsh and critical of everything that we see around us. There is so much good to be had and to be enjoyed in the world. But it's the reality of what we will get from the world compared to what we will get from the kingdom of God. We need to see and view the kingdom that we live amongst with a renewed perspective. We need to open our eyes. Christian, you need to remember who you are. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. You need to see the kingdoms of this world for what they are. And you need to see the kingdom of God as a better kingdom. And we need to be patient for God's providence. I said before that there is no mention of God in chapter 1. He, he doesn't feature at all. It kind of reads like a bit of a novel, doesn't it? Like it wouldn't be out of place just on the, on the shelves in W.H. Smith. But it's found its way into the Bible. And imagine kind of the, the Jews who were living in Susa at the time. Imagine kind of living under the rule of King Azuerus as he's kind of just partying hard and accumulating all of this wealth. And they have a sense that, that this just isn't who they are. They're members of a different kingdom, but, but they can't see it anymore. All they can see is foreign rule. Listen to this quote. This is by a guy called John Flavel, who was um, a Puritan writer a few hundred years ago. He says this, Providence is like a Hebrew word. It is best read backwards. Providence, the providence of God, is like a Hebrew word. It is best read backwards. See what he's saying there? But actually, quite often we can kind of be in a situation and think, God isn't here. He's not at work. We can't see his hand at work. Well, then move on a few days or a few weeks or a few years and then look back and actually we see, oh, oh he was there all the time. He was working all the time. So often we can think that God is absent and he's maybe powerless. We can assume that he is not there. But I need to tell you this morning, he is always working out his purposes. And just because we can't see his hand at work, just because he isn't kind of coming down in a, in a pillar of cloud or a pillar of, of fire, just because there isn't kind of a supernatural, miraculous things going on around us, that does not mean that he is not at work. He is always at work and he is always near to his people. We're going to see that even in the drunken tantrum of a, of a, of a king here, that God is at work in the most incredible way. And his people need to be patient for his providence. We need to wait for his providence. Andy at the back there uses this um, illustration all the time. And I'm going to roll it out again because it's a good one. Quite often the providence of God is when we're looking at the back uh, of a tapestry. And I realize probably none of us have got a clue what a tapestry is. So um, you kind of think of maybe cross-stitching is maybe a bit more. Uh, I used to cross-stitch, nothing wrong with that. Um, but you, you kind of think of the back of something which has been woven together, whether it's a tapestry or a kind of piece of artwork of threads. And as you look at the back of it, all you see is kind of just jumbled colors and kind of threads hanging out and just all sorts of things. And you can't quite figure out what's going on. But then you come round to the front of the tapestry. And what do you see? Wow. There's a picture there. The, the, these things kind of make sense. I can see how it all fits together. Like there's a beautiful piece of artwork there. Quite often the providence of God is just like that. All we can see is kind of just glimmers of things or maybe confusion or even chaos sometimes. Quite often when we're walking through darkness or, or disappointment or even unbelief and we just can't see God working at all. He is at work. And a time will come when we're able to turn around and see that his hand has been at work all the time. God isn't seen at all in chapter one of this book. 
And so I believe he is teaching us to trust. To trust that he is who he says he is. That he is a faithful God who does not leave his people and, and will not leave his promises unfulfilled. Trust. I saw this really cheesy um, thing doing the circulars on Twitter this week. It was one of these kind of lists of reasons that babies laugh. Did you see it? Kind of 10 reasons that baby laugh. Number one, the reason... Um, that ba- uh, I was kind of giving an example that, that, that when you throw babies in the air, uh, is he? Whoa, he's not in there, is he? No, I thought there was a, maybe we could have done a bit of a, a um, practical demonstration, but the baby's not there. When, when you throw a baby in the air, it laughs, doesn't it? And this kind of cheesy thing was saying the reason a baby laughs when you throw it in the air is because it, it trusts that you're going to catch it again. It's fun for it. It doesn't believe that you're going to kind of throw it in the air and then kind of just put your hands behind your back and then it falls to the floor. Of course it doesn't. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not. I'm sure it isn't, but it, it kind of fits this quite well, so I'm going to use it. There's trust there by that child. It feels safe in kind of the, the, the providence, in the protection of its mother or father. It's enjoying kind of this journey of, of complete trust that, 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 that these arms are going to grab it when it comes down again. Folks, you need to trust in God, even like that little child does. And sometimes we will be in circumstances that feel just just dangerous or, or a bit risky or, or why would God even, even, even put me through this or allow me to experience this? Trust him. Trust him that he has you. Let me read to you again Psalm 130. We read, read it at the start. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If your Lord should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. It's not a bad thing to, to maybe not see the, the kind of supernatural, miraculous work of God in front of you, and just to, just to sit and wait in hope. To hope in his word, which is always true. His promises, which are always true. In his word, which shows us the fullness of the character of God. That he is completely trustworthy. He is completely faithful. I believe in this first chapter here as we see the absence of God. The perceived absence of God. The question that screams out to me is, will you trust him? Will you trust me? I think God is saying, even when you cannot see me. Even when you can't see me at work, even in the darkest moments of your life, will you trust me? We need to be patient for God's providence. And finally, we need to long for a better kingdom. This kingdom of Persia, the most powerful kingdom that maybe this world has ever seen. King Azuerus kind of has everything at his feet, all the parties, all the relationships, the food and drink, the power, the money, the influence. Literally 44% of the world's population are under his rule at this moment in time. The Persian kingdom are the first kingdom who, who kind of roll out uh, monetary taxes. He has the most fertile land in the world. Everything is under his feet. Yet at the end of the chapter, he just looks confused. And empty. It reminds me a lot of King Solomon. Remember kind of King Solomon? We were going through the book of Ecclesiastes. A, a king that comes a, a, a few years before King Ezuerus. He was a king of God's people. 
But he kind of writes in, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he, he literally tries everything. He's been everywhere, he's done it all. And at the end of it, he was still thirsty. He was still discontent. He was still dissatisfied. He tried everything the world had to offer. And he still didn't find life. Actually, when you peel back the layers, and we're going to see this particularly in the next couple of chapters, when you peel back the layers of this kingdom here, this kingdom of Persia, you will see that actually this is a kingdom that you wouldn't want to be anywhere near. It is dark. It's a sexualized kingdom. It's a, a kingdom where people are a commodity. It's a kingdom where it is driven by fear. In so many ways, the kingdoms of our world now are exactly the same. On the exterior, they look glorious. They look great. They look something, something that we want to be part of. When you peel back the layers of what these kingdoms are really propped up by, you see that they aren't what they promise. They aren't what they appear to be. The big kind of things that really mark out our kingdom, money, sex, and power, and in some sense, in some ways, those things are to be enjoyed by God. They are gifts from God. When you peel back the layers and actually you see what, what the pursuit of those things leads to, you'd see that that isn't a kingdom that you want to be part of. That isn't a kingdom that you want to root your lives on. Think about the kind of kingdom uh, which is propped up by the pursuit of money. I read last night, 1% of, of um, um, oh, sorry, let me get the statistic right. 1% of people in the world hold the wealth, hold 50% of the global wealth. Does that make sense? 1% of the people in this world own 50% of all of the wealth in this world, while 1 billion people live on less than £1.50 a day. That's crazy, isn't it? That's where the pursuit of wealth leads us to. That kind of polarized kingdom where there are so many people who are doing really well. But there are tons more people who are struggling even to live. You think of the pursuit of kind of comfort and, and satisfaction within sex. You know that sex trafficking is a 32 billion pound industry. Selling of, of girls and boys and women and men for sex. Now here's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that all of us are kind of complicit in the sex trade. Of course we're not. But that is where it leads to. Pursuit of that is our God. As, 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 as sex is the place that we all find, find, find contentment and satisfaction. That is where it has led to. A whole economy being built on people. Being abused for their bodies. When we start to peel back the layers of the kingdoms around us, folks, it should have us longing for a better kingdom, surely. And a better king. A kingdom which is, which is fair, which is just, which is peaceful. A king who is unlike King Ahasuerus, who, who rules with justice. A king who, who rules with love and rules with mercy and thinks about all of his people. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are part of that kingdom already. And you have a king in King Jesus who is loving, who is kind, who rules with justice, who rules with peace. King Jesus is truly the antitype to the king we read here in chapter one. 
King Ahasuerus here is known for his party and he's known for his wealth. The greatest act of our King Jesus wasn't, wasn't something to kind of prop himself up so, so everyone could see how great he was. The greatest act of our King Jesus was an act of complete humility. He came to earth and lived amongst us, put on human flesh, engaged in, in life like we engage in it, but without sin. And the mark of this king, the thing that we look to that really kind of helps us remember who this king was, isn't kind of a statue, it isn't kind of a, a statistic about the GDP that, that, that he accumulated, it isn't kind of all the, all the provinces that he rules over. What is the reminder that we have of this king? The cross. That is the king who rules and reigns over his people. Who ruled and reigned in a great act of humility. Who on his head wasn't kind of placed a crown of, of gold and diamonds and jewels, but on his head was placed a crown of thorns. As he was nailed to a cross and died for the sins of his people. But who raised three days later and is now ruling and reigning over a kingdom whose, listen to this, whose subjects follow him, not out of fear, but out of love. It's interesting as you kind of get to the end of this first part of the chapter. He's drunk, he's kind of full of lust, he wants his wife to, he wants to parade his wife like a trophy wife. He wants to bring this, this wife who, who sounds like she has kind of just stunning beauty and, and he wants all of the princes to see how great he is that he's kind of got this, this beautiful wife. And Queen Vasti hears the call of the king. Come, I want to kind of bring you out for people to see. She hears the call of the king and she wants none of it. She refuses it. And we can see why, can't we? I wouldn't go. Would you go to a king like that? Who's drunk on lust, who is, who is drunk on his own power, who just parties hard, who only cares for himself? Queen Vashti hears the call of the king and refuses him. The God of heaven calls us, folks, and he is faithful. He is full of love. He is full of grace. He is full of mercy. He calls himself, in the word, a faithful husband. A faithful husband. King Azuerus isn't a faithful husband to his wife, Queen Vashti. God is a faithful husband. He is closer than a brother. King Jesus will call you today, folks. Would you answer him and come to him? A king who has only shown himself to be good. A king who has only shown himself to be faithful. A king who loves you. And would have you come and follow him, not out of fear, in response to the love that he has shown you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, for how you use it to, to show us the reality of the world that we live in. And in this first chapter, we, we recognize the, the power and the splendor and the, and the glory of all the kingdoms around us but we also see that these things will never be able to fulfill us. They'll never be able to give us life and contentment and peace. Give us eyes to see that. 
Help us to view the kingdoms that we live amongst with a, with a renewed perspective, to see all of the great things that they give us, to enjoy all of the gifts that they bring us, but not to bank our lives on them, not to submit to them as our king, not to pursue them to their end to try and find life. Would we see you, Lord Jesus, as a better king who rules over a better kingdom? And would we know that you are faithful even when we don't see you at work? Even when it feels like you are distant, would we know that you are present? That you are always near to your people. And as we read of just the realities of the world that we live in and the kingdoms that we live alongside, would you just... Would you work in our hearts just a a desire and a zeal and a longing for a better kingdom? Jesus, we thank you that because of your life, your death, your resurrection and your ascension, that you have brought the kingdom. That it is already here, but we recognize it is not yet complete. That there is a day coming when you will return. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord and King. And you will rule and reign over your kingdom which will be a place of peace, joy, enjoyment of life to the full. As we live with you forever. So help us. Lord Jesus, by your spirit, would you help us where there is a proclivity to wander and to, and to entertain ourselves with things which will never quench our thirst. Would you help us to see that you are better? We're sorry for the ways in which we Constantly, day after day, lie to ourselves. Chase after other kings and other kingdoms. Help us to see that you are infinitely better than anything this world could offer. Help us to see that you are a loving God who truly loves his people, who rules over his people with justice, mercy, and peace. Help us to trust Holy Spirit, help us in our weakness. The glory of Jesus. Amen.